right, thanks, Luke. Well, uh, you know, when you get up here and preach, and it's usually Luke, you kind of feel like that guy who came in to pinch hit for the star who, like, had a, pulled a hammy or something like that. It's like, you know he's a pro, he's okay, but, man, he's not as good as the other guy. And, uh, man, we just have a great uh, communicator in Luke, and we're thankful for him. And I know it's uh, uh, no easy thing to give up the pulpit, brother, so I appreciate it. Uh, very much. And uh, I do want to talk about the college campus, at the specific, specifically the University of Tennessee. And uh, some of you guys may be thinking, why the big deal about college students? Well, all I have to do is take just a minute, and if you just look at the last week of our world, and you just take a minute and look at CNN, USA Today, and all the media outlets, and you look at who is making the most news in our world, it's 20-somethings. Yeah, we have a few of them up here, right? Uh-huh. It really is, if you think about it, whether it's uh, getting a, a chancellor of a university fired, whether it's uh, literally killing hundreds of people because of something that you believe in to the point of death, or whether it's uh, winning a football game and get 102,000 people to go buy a ticket to watch them score one touchdown in the second half, which is what I did yesterday. College students, 20-somethings, are, uh, they are the, the momentum of our world in many ways. And the reason why we target college students is simply this, as we, uh, as Campus Outreach, looked at being strategic with this great commission that God has given us, this call to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. We started to look at, well, you have this big swath of people called adolescents, children. Man, we need to reach children. Some of you are giving your lives away to reaching children, you're raising children. But when you look at their influences, they're pretty much being influenced by their parents, their peers, and they still have a curfew of like 10 o'clock at night, most of them, even if you can get with them. So it's, it's kind of a hard world to get into in some ways. Then you have the postgraduate life, and you have mortgages and marriages and kids and jobs and all kinds of things that tie people down. And what we're saying is, man, you, all of a sudden you have this demographic of the college student that says, Man, what do we do with our time? Well, we could play Xbox for like three hours a day. I know UT students and don't do that, but uh, they do at Tennessee Tech. We get, we get to study for hours on end every day. We get to hang out, uh, tweet like 5,000 tweets a day, and all these different things are going on. And all of a sudden, it's a very strategic time because you can also sit down and build a relationship, have time to invest in a person who is going to end up all over the world. Literally, you're going to be able to catapult them throughout the world. Every doctor was at one time a college student. Every teacher was at one time a college student. Every preacher just about was at one time a college student. And fill in the blanks. So in light of that, that's why I'm giving my life away to the college campus. And kind of our vision with Campus Outreach is that God would use us and our vision statement is this. It's building laborers on the campus for the lost world. Building laborers on the campus for the lost world. And where that comes from is Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Jesus was talking with his disciples, and he looked upon the crowd on this mountain he was on, the people were down there, and he had compassion on them, and he said, they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he looked at his guys and said, okay, here's the answer. Ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers and workers to go into that field. He gives the answer. I mean, most of you probably weren't like me, but I loved having an answer key if I could get my hands on one on any class I had from kindergarten until graduate school. 
and everywhere in between. If I could get that answer key, man, it helps out a lot. Well, Jesus gives the answer. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. They were harassed. They were helpless. What's the answer? Pray for a laborer to go work in that harvest field. And we have about 30,000 plus or minus laborers in waiting in the harvest right over there in about a four or five mile square area right on in Fort Sanders that we're asking God to raise up workers and laborers for this harvest field. And what we believe will happen, and, and I think it's not just we believe it, I think it's going to happen. It's just a matter of if I want to get on board for the ride or not. But the Lord is going to raise up these workers and laborers. In fact, before the creation of the world, he knew who was going to respond to this message, and he knew who was going to go and choose Tennessee over Alabama. Good, good move. And all these different things that were going to happen, and they were going to end up interacting with the another Christian in some way, shape, or form, and they were going to hear this message, and they were going to believe and repent and give their lives to Christ and say, I'm going to go. So it's going to happen. It's just a matter of if we want to get on board with it or not, and that's what I'm saying. I want, to, I want to get on board with that. And our belief is, is as God raises up these laborers, they're going to go and multiply their lives and start other campus ministries. All of a sudden, we're going to see a campus outreach not only at Tennessee Tech and University of Tennessee, but we're going to see it happen at East Tennessee State University. And we'll go down I-75 and go down to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And then from there, Lord, keep raising up workers and, and people who believe that the college campus can produce every kind of missionary possible. And we're going to send them out to the West Coast and the Northeast, all over the 1040 window, South America. Anywhere we can send them, they'll go. And you know what? They can go. College students can go. And some people ask me, Mace, why not be a lawyer? Why not be a doctor? Why not be a, a full-time lead pastor? And I say, hey, all those things are wonderful, but I can send six of those over the next five years on the college campus. You ever think about that for a minute? Mace, why don't you be a teacher? Man, right now we'd probably have 10 of those at Tennessee Tech waiting to go be teachers. And last year we sent three of them to go teach at the worst school in Memphis, Tennessee. Because they said, hey, they said we can come and teach. They're going to pay us more than the people who go work in Brentwood, Tennessee. And they said we can talk about Jesus as much as we want because no one will come teach here. Wow. Why would I go be a teacher? I can send 10 of them out over the next few years. And so you see the strategy there. Not only are we going to multiply laborers and workers on the college campus, but we'll multiply exponentially laborers and workers all through this state, this country, and this world. And then to do that in conjunction with the local church, in conjunction with our local church specifically, and the network it's in with Acts 29, literally you start to see an army of workers going into this harvest field where they can go and pick every ear of corn off that field that's white and ready for harvest and bring it in, and we can see the Lord come in all his glory. Bill Bright would always say, the founder of Campus Crusade, what if we prayed that we would see the Lord come back in this generation? And we would go and answer the call, because he says when, the, when that last one is reached, he will come back. There's a whole bunch of doctrine and different views and 
points that come up behind that, but man, it sure does get me excited when I think, man, what if we were part of the last link in the harvest? And I think that's very possible. So that's one of the reasons why we're focused on the University of Tennessee area and the surrounding regional campuses. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of have a theme verse for my life. I uh, came off to college. I was not a Christian. Uh, the reason I went to college was simply I was not ready to go work at a factory or in a field, uh, which is what most people in southern Indiana did when they graduated, or you went to college. And I was like, well, I'll go to college. And uh, so I went to school down in Kentucky at Murray State University. Only people who are basketball fans know where that is or I've ever heard of it. And uh, I went down there, and uh, again, my... Uh, ambitions in life were quite simple. I wanted to meet girls, go out with girls, uh, and party with the, my buddies who did those two things. And uh, in the process of that, after about a month, you know, of kind of playing the game, it was, you know, okay, things were going well. I met a guy who was the first Christian I ever met who liked college football. I don't know what, I was in the wrong circles or something like that, but he was normal. Was, for me, that was kind of like, he liked sports, he knew about the, the party scene. He'd been there, done that, but at the same time, he was this Christian guy. He comes in, he shares his faith with me. You guys know the story, many of you in this room. Three or four months later, he uh, breaks down my barriers, helps me realize I'm not a Christian, even though I've culturally been involved in the church and all those different things. Gave my life to Jesus Christ, and he started to disciple me and equip me and train me in the basics of the Christian faith. And I can remember one of the verses I came by when I was a young Christian, was Colossians 1, 28 and 29. That's the Apostle Paul writing to the church there at Colossae. And he was kind of talking about what he was living his life for. And he says this, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Man, you want a good mission statement for your life? Man, that, Paul said that, and I can remember thinking about that. And here's, the, here's what stuck out to me about this verse. Let's do a quick little, little simple Bible study. This is what we teach the uh, college students after they come to Christ and start getting hungry. Just teach them a real simple method, observation, interpretation, and application of a verse. What are some observations? One is this. Paul was very bold in what he was living for. We proclaim him. This is what we're going to do. We're going to proclaim Jesus Christ boldly with no apology. It's one of the things that attracted me to Luke and Legacy Church. They were very clear. Here's what we're all about. We're going to proclaim Jesus Christ boldly. Then Paul goes on to say this, admonishing and teaching. Admonishing just means warning, like, hey, this is real. We're not sugarcoating this. Jesus Christ really is the Lord of the universe, and if you're not in a personal relationship with him, you will be cut off forever from God and deserving of his wrath and punishment. But the good news is he took on that wrath and punishment, died the death we should have died, and rose again three days later and gave us life and life abundant. I'm warning you. I'm admonishing you and teaching you what this means. And we're going to do it with all the wisdom we can because of who God is, the word of God. And he says this, and this is the phrase that always caught me. To this end. Your version may not say it. I use the old mid-80s NIV version. 1984 specifically. It was still good back then. 
to this end. And that point in my life, I remember I was struggling over what I should major in and what I should do. I was a new Christian, so I believed Jesus was Lord of my life and he had changed me radically and all those things. But I was still like, what am I giving my life to? Like when it's all said and done at the very end, when somebody says, what are you living for? That verse caught it for me. It's to this end, admonishing and teaching everyone I come in contact with. Just like somebody did for me. All I want to do is give my life away to reaching as many people possible in the most strategic way possible. And so I was in the middle of the college campus, and I realized everybody has just tons of time on their hands. It really, it does, you really do. You don't think that, but you do have tons of time on your hands. Just ask somebody with one kid, just one. That's all it takes. But then Paul goes on and says this. He's very bold. He's very confident, but he goes on and says this. It's to this end I'm laboring. This is what I'm giving my life to, but he goes on and says this. With all his energy, struggling with all his energy, and that just caught me, struggling. The Christian life isn't about being bold because of all this energy you conjure up and the great communication skills you have and the people you know and the brains that God has given you and all these different, you know what? The whole thing is a struggle. I, in fact, I, I can't do this. But something is working within me, he goes on to say, from the inside out that produces this boldness, this charisma, this courage. And that's what the gospel is, and that's what the gospel does. It's God coming in, not asking permission, changing your life, making you a new person with a new spirit, and then immediately giving you a mission. And you may ask yourself, well, where does Paul get all this from? And we have a chance to see that in Acts chapter 26 this morning. We're on this theme, Jesus' people multiplying and moving. And when we look at Acts 26, what we see is that Jesus' people are bold. And Paul is about to show us why they are bold in his testimony in Acts chapter 26. And so let me pray for us, and we'll dive in this passage. Lord, thank you so much that you are the one in control, that you are the one we proclaim that your grace and mercy and gift of life, eternal life to us, gives us a reason to warn and teach everyone and that we can be presented perfect in you because you died a perfect death and rose again in our behalf. I pray as we leave today, we would all have a proclamation saying that to this end we labor, not because of anything we've done, but because we struggle with all the power and energy that works in and through us because of you and the testimony you've given us, just like you gave Paul. Lord, raise up workers and laborers on the college campus to go into all the world and reach, preach the good news to all creation. Raise up specifically college students at the University of Tennessee. Lord, there's thousands there who do not know you, and if they died today, they would be separated. But Lord, you have given us a message to go and Seek and save the lost. Raise them up. 
And it's in your name I pray. Amen. When I was in college at Murray State, like I mentioned, uh, I grew up in Indiana and went to college in Kentucky. So there's one thing we did a lot with our free time that we had, basketball. And, uh, you know, again, I didn't really go for co to college for academic reasons altogether. There was a lot of social reasons I was there. And one of those social things I hung on to was trying to live the dream of being the college basketball guy. I never got the call from Bobby Knight in high school like we all dreamed about. They come up full scholarship to IU, you know, that never happened. And so I had to settle for intramural basketball. But I knew a few things when it came to basketball to be successful. And that was this. I could never be the best player on my team if I wanted to be on a good team because I knew what kind of player I was. Remember, Bobby Knight wouldn't call me. <laughs> there was a reason behind that. But the guys who were over six foot five. They were really good. And the guys who were over six foot five who happened to be on the football team, they just chose football over basketball. They were even better than the other guys that were just six five going to college. And so I recruited all those guys to be on my team. And literally, man, I was just rolling in intramural t shirts for five years. Yes, five. I took a victory lap all through college. I, mean, I treasured those things and gave more time away than I did the high school varsity team. I mean, it was just so fun because it was just like, and here's why I could show up to every game. And I was literally, I mean, behind the back, Harlem Trotters off the backboard. And it's like, all I had to do was show up and just kind of throw the ball, and the other guys did the rest. I was bold. I was confident. And the reason why is because of the surrounding cast I had around me. Well, I think when we ask, well, why are Jesus' people so bold in proclaiming the gospel? Why is the Apostle Paul so bold in proclaiming the gospel is because of the God he knew. In the book of Daniel, it says this, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Daniel did that. And Paul is about to give us a dissertation here, a testimony before King Agrippa. Luke talked about kind of the context of that last week. And a big audience was there. And he was very bold, but the reason why he was so bold, and he's about to give us the insights on that, was because of this God he knew and how he came to know him. And so let's look at this just real, real quickly from a kind of a 30,000 flyover of the whole chapter. Paul is before Agrippa here. Agrippa is kind of the leading uh, judge in the area. He has a Jewish background, and so he's kind of the next authority that he's had to come to and talk about the accusations against him. It says this, verse 26, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, to, that according to the strict sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And not now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope 
that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? What you see happening there is Paul saying, I consider the opening statement there is just incredible to me. It stuck out all week. I couldn't get away from it. He stands there. This huge audience is around him. All this pomp and circumstance was brought in because of the pride of the different religious leaders, which basically just gave him even more of a platform. And he says, I consider myself privileged to be here. It's an honor to be here. And I think the reason he says that and has this privileged mentality is because of what he's about to say about who God is and how he changed his life. Let me tell you where I came from. Let me open this up. I was religious beyond religious in my community. I knew everything there was to know about what it took to get to heaven, and I was doing all those things. I had my religious works built up to where my resume, God would have had to promote me immediately to take over one of the, you know, St. Peter's cloud up there, which he didn't know St. Peter at the time, but you guys get where I'm coming from here. That I, I was the end product of a religious person. And you can ask any of these people about my religious background. But the problem was, Paul knew he was putting his hope in a false hope. In fact, he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your works so that no man can boast. The Apostle Paul understood that. I have to set this up, that religious activity does not make you bold. Knowledge does not make you bold. In fact, it gives you a false hope, and when you have a false hope, combine that with a boldness that's intrinsic and just part of your personality, it usually ends up in destruction. And that's what the Apostle Paul was saying here. I had all my hope and zeal built in my religious works. Some of you today, maybe that's one of the things you need to consider. Am I putting my hope and trust in my religious works? Did I maybe come today because there's something I feel guilty about that I need to do some religious activity to kind of cover up and build myself up and make myself feel better before this God who's out there cosmically? I think in many ways that's what Paul was doing here, was setting up the story that your religion does not save you. It's only a false boldness. But when you realize who this God is, that a godly boldness comes. How did he end this, this section? He says, how hard is it to believe that God could raise someone from the dead? When we know what we know, when we know all the Old Testament stories and we've seen what God has done over the history of the world, this is where we put our faith and hope in, the God who raises the dead because they knew about the story of Jesus and the claims of Jesus. God raised him. So that first point there is godly boldness produces confidence. The second is this. Knowing, the, the, knowing God produces an undeniable, bold testimony. He goes on the rest of the chapter. It says this, chapter, verse 9. I was convinced that I, 
I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue, from one synagogue to another, to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was coming to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, I was on the road, and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So what we see there is Paul, moving on from his religious activity story to say, well, here's what happened. The religious activity, I was putting my confidence in that. I thought I was right, and I put my hope and trust in all my giftings. One of those giftings was I could talk people down and have authority over them spiritually. And so anybody that opposed that, it brought out the beast in me to the point of I was going around making them blaspheme against God and say this whole Jesus Christ thing wasn't real. I was going to the point of, hey, how can I cast my vote to get them put to death or put in prison? And in fact, how can I, I'll even spend my own money and go out of my jurisdiction to where I know there's people who aren't being persecuted. I'll go to foreign lands. That's how far I will go. But then God intercepted me. And that's really how the Lord always works if you think about it. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Mace, hold on. I grew up in East Tennessee. My parents were Southern Baptists. My grandparents were Southern Baptists. My great-grandparents were Southern Baptists or fill in the denomination, whatever it is. And we were good people, and I came to Christ when I was at a young age, and I never did too many bad things, but I, I can't remember when I wasn't a Christian. I think I made a profession of faith, you know, in my teen years or something like that. God didn't come in and blind me and, you know, <laughs> knock me off my horse or anything like that. And I would say, yes, he did. The problem is, is we have a poor view of who this God is and how holy he is and how just he is. Because in all reality, even when you were seven years old being selfish with that piece of candy that you hoarded on, out of your Halloween bucket that your sister wanted, or whether you were all persecuting and make people blaspheme God, in any way you look at it, ultimately we stand before a God who's holy and just and has no sin. So that means any sin infinitely opposes him and deserve ultimate justice, infinite justice. But God stepped into your life, whether you have the Paul violent testimony or whether you have the good upbringing, I came to Christ at a young age testimony, God intercepted your life and knocked you off your horse and blinded the old you and gave you sight to see Christ in a new way and made a new you. Have you thought about that for a minute this morning? Maybe some of you, this is the morning where you realize, man, God is changing my life this week, this month, today. I'm reading the biography of Louis, Louis uh, Zamperini, Unbroken, the movie that just came out. And these guys were in the POW camps in Japan. 
And life was pretty hopeless. They didn't think they were going to get out of it. They thought, well, even if our allied troops come, they have a kill-all order to where they just cover up and don't leave any chance of there being survivors that can tell on us for war crimes. But when the, I was just talking to some of the guys who work in Oak Ridge, but, but when they dropped that atomic bomb, it, it was a game changer that we can't even explain to the culture in Japan and the way they were operating and the way it changed the war and even changed how they could even conduct themselves to exercise any of the things to cover up all the POWs. And it, and it literally saved them, it says in the book. And history would agree. And that's really what Paul is trying to explain here. What happens when conversion happens? When the gospel is preached and people hear this good news, it's like Hiroshima all over again on a spiritual level. God comes in unannounced and boom, you're a new creation. Paul says it just to kind of interpret scripture with scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, whether at five or whether at 50, and anywhere in between, he is a new creation. The old has gone, whether the offense is stealing gum from your mom or persecuting Christians. The old is gone, the new has come. There was a bold God behind Paul's conversion, which gave him a bold testimony to stand on. And just like my, my college intramural basketball days, it wasn't because of anything he was doing. It was because of this God who was behind him, indwelling him, making him this new creation, empowering him. And then it goes on, this is where it gets good for me. Then Paul goes on after talking about his conversion, and he starts to talk about this new commission that the Lord gave him. Here's what the Lord says. Now get up and stand on your feet. What a loving God. We always think about sweet Jesus, you know what I mean? Like petting lambs and walking one inch off the ground and the lilies and things like that. He's got blue eyes, you know. <laughs> get up, stand on your feet. I just, I just, I just, I just not. I've, I've saved you, I made you a new creation, but now get up. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. I love that section of the verse, of the passage. 
The Lord has saved you to send you. You know, one of the reasons why all these college students have so much free time, I promise you have free time. You don't believe me. I'm going to keep bugging you about that. Because most of them are milling around trying to figure out what's my purpose in life, right? Big question in your 20s. Who am I? What am I supposed to do? I think in many ways we in the church in America are struggling with that question. It's what's making us in many ways impotent, not powerful, not bold, is that we dwell so much on only the Salvitic part of the gospel and the Great Commission that we forget the mission part, the commissioning. I'm saving you, and now I want you to go immediately. He didn't say, okay, Paul, read all these books, figure out how to do this out of a pure heart so you do it out of the right motives. He didn't say, go and live your life and preach the gospel and use words if you have to. Nope, that's not in the Bible. He says, go and proclaim, and here's what you proclaim, repentance. Which if you look at the original Greek right there, and what that really means, it means, hey, tell everybody to immediately stop what they're doing, change their mind, and start living all out for Jesus Christ in a society that hated Christianity. And so Paul said, I was not disobedient to this message. First in Damascus, right where it happened. Then in Jerusalem and Judea, and then to the Gentiles who were, you know, these Gentiles, think about this for a minute. We always think, oh, the Gentiles, you know, they were the people out there who weren't Jews. They were kind of like us, the common man, you know, blue-collar workers, not real big high-society religious people. No, they're out there killing people, worshiping animals, killing you if you came into their communities, we would even say on some level of savage type people, not all, but quite a few of them. And he was a Pharisee in his background, totally cross-cultural, saying, I'm going to go in here and preach to these people. But again, he says this, but I've had God's help to this very day. He's not saying I did all this and I was a bold person because of my gifting and my strengths and my background. He is saying, I did all this because of God changing my life, putting his Holy Spirit in me, and giving me the power to go and preach the good news to all creation, just like Jesus Christ commanded. What about you? One, if we look at our conversion, we say, man, God really did come in and A-bomb my life. <laughs> he changed me. He didn't ask me. I didn't decide to follow Jesus. I was deciding to follow me, and all of a sudden he came in and boom, he changed everything. But one of the fruits of that is a desire, a hunger, a want to say, Lord, help me be obedient to go and share this message with as many other people as I can. And I would say not out of a guilt of if I don't do this, God won't love me. Because here's the thing. 
when God comes in and changes your heart and makes you a new creation and puts his Holy Spirit in you, all you know is, man, I deserved hell. I get heaven because Jesus took the cross and rose again, and he loves me unconditionally, and I get to follow him. So it's not a guilt thing that I want to go tell people. It's just something, like literally, something new in me wants to talk to other people about this. Just like when I was in my first year on staff, and I had this staff girl who worked with me. Her name was Cindy. And all of a sudden, I started to like her. And guess what I did with all my friends? Hey, man, this girl Cindy I'm working with. I know she's super spiritual. She's like knockout. She's out of my league. But I can't stop thinking about her. And my friends were like, quit talking about her so much. I said, I can't. So we got engaged and married all in like a six-month period. It was crazy, and it was awesome. But this love wells up in you when you have this conversion experience, and you can't not talk about him. Is that an okay double negative? You can't not talk about him. So it's not this guilt that drives you. It's a love and a desire But even that not being the motive, it's also not even the people who you're burdened over. You are burdened. You care about people. All of a sudden, intrinsically, there's this love of Christ where you care more about other people and the golden rule and the great commandment of love your neighbor as yourself starts to well up. But even that's not enough because if you guys are anything like me, I'm a Christian. I love God. I want to see people come to Christ. I'm burdened. My heart gets broke. I cry over their sins. But I also get fed up with human beings who aren't me. In some mysterious way, this earthly, fleshly suit that I'm in overpowers that compassion side of me that God has put in my heart. It's working from the inside out. You know, my flesh, that many times overpowers it, and I'd rather not go talk to that person across the hall in our apartment complex. It's like, oh, man, there's just so many issues, and I got my own kids and family I got to take care of, and then there's these other kids down the hall. Half of them don't have dads. We're in the apartment, and I'm like the, their father figure, and they're all hanging on my leg, want me to throw the football, and it's like, okay, it's fun, and we talk about Jesus, but they just look at me like deer in the headlights, you know what I mean? And it's like, I really get to the end of the week, and it's like, I don't want to talk to any more people. So simply saying, there's people dying and going to hell. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. That's great. It's not enough because we're too sinful in and of ourselves. You know, for me, what the greatest motivator and what I've seen is this thing that comes with being motivated to go and be bold with the gospel and get it out there is the last part of the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus, again, talking to his disciples. It's kind of the Acts 1-8 that we talked about at the very beginning of the sermon series. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And then he ends with this. And surely, for you King Jimmy folks, lo, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
You mean, not only am I amazed by this grace of God that has transformed me and made me a new creation, but you've called me and raised me up to be an ambassador, as Paul says, to represent you with high authority, and you've given me a compassion for the lost, but when it's all said and done, when I do this, when I live out this great commission, when I'm bold with this message, the payoff is I get to go to work with Dad. I get a constant, internal, infinite reminder that he is with me always in ways I don't get when I'm just going to Bible studies or just listening to K-Love radio. And I'll, Okay, I told my wife I wouldn't be sarcastic. I won't go there. But when I go and I move my family from our comfortable, dead-end road with good neighbors and friends and halfway paid mortgage and all that stuff, and I move to this new city where no one knows me, and I walk around, and the first person I tried to share with one day on campus got up and left as soon as my mouth opened. But when he left, you know what? I immediately felt the presence of the Lord with me. And it's like, I will give my life away to this great commission, and I will be bold with it, because every time I do, I experience the presence of Jesus Christ in my life. And that will make you as bold as a lion. And that's what we saw Paul there proclaiming. Then we'll end just with the last part of this passage. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your learning is driving you insane. Paul said, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his nose because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that God, not only you, but everyone listening here would become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking to one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The last point here, and we need to catch this about being bold. As God works in and through your life, as he reminds you of who you were, as you think about and ponder the joy of your salvation and your gospel testimony and conversion, as you experience his presence, as you step out and share with your coworkers and share with your family and share with those who God has put in your sphere of influence and you experience that and you live sacrificially to get this gospel out, not because I have to feel guilty about it or because of even the souls of men, but because it makes me more intimate with Jesus Christ, here's what will happen. You will have enemies. You will be called crazy. You will have false accusations put up against you that put you in peculiar situations, maybe even get you fired, get you dismissed if you're not fired, just as being a loon. And it'll play itself out in so many ways, and you know what? You won't care. 
If the Holy Spirit of God has changed your life, and don't get me wrong here, you'll care in your conscience, in your psyche, in your flesh. I mean, I'm the most insecure person I know. I don't know anybody as insecure as I am. And if we're all being honest with this, we can all say that, right? <laughs> because only you know how deeply insecure you are. And isn't it freeing to boast about that? Paul, man, this, interpreting Paul, Paul is so awesome. Paul, I boast all the more of my weaknesses so that Jesus gets more glory, which makes me feel more bold. You won't care in this sense. I experience Christ more. But let's not be naive and think, man, if we just go out, if we move to Center City, plan our church and just love people and give them things and do cookouts, people are just going to love us and they're going to start coming to our church. And, you know, Luke said, you know, I don't care if only a few people come. You know, no, no really, we care. We hope everybody comes. Because, and we're going to do it because we're going to be really nice and sweet and loving and we're going to be politically correct on all levels and all these different things and we're going to do so many social needs that meet and we're going to preach the gospel like I said earlier and use words with our half to note. God won't let us miss out on the awesome opportunity to be persecuted. Maybe not in the ISIS attack type way. Probably more in some of these ways. You're out of your mind. You're crazy, yeah. But I don't care. I can't stop thinking and talking about this faith that God put in my heart and how good it is. And I, I'm so in love with Jesus and I care so much about you because of the love he's put in me. I don't even care that you don't like me right now. I'm gonna keep coming at you. In fact, Paul said this, when your enemies persecute you, love them back. Romans chapter 12. Find ways to serve them. In fact, the persecution, the making fun of, the dismissals, they only increase the opportunities for you to go and prove that this really is something supernatural. Anybody else would have moved by now. Anybody else would have given up by now. And you alone in the morning when you're spending time with the Lord, it's like, man, my whole day is going to be full of persecution today, dismissal, made fun of, so right now is the best time where I can just spend time with you, Lord. Guess what? My relationship with, Lord, with Jesus is deeper because of all the things happening, and which makes me more bold. So as we close out, just in review and application over this, Jesus' people are bold with the gospel because of the God they know the story they have, the mission they're on, and it's able to empower them to walk through any kind of fires. Not because of anything they've done, but because of the God who's at work in them. As you leave this week, consider those areas. Is, is the gospel story in my own heart, my own testimony, is it have that A-bomb effect regardless of when that happened in my life? Did it radically change me? Maybe it's time for you to come and repent like Paul was preaching and believe the good news. Maybe you ended up here by just crazy circumstances. You met this guy at the gas station. He says he goes to Legacy at some church that meets in the school. What the heck is that? And, you know, you're here, and it's like, here's this crazy guy talking about believing in Jesus and putting your faith and trust in him. 
Maybe you've gotten to where your life is just cultural southern churchianity. I won't even call it Christianity. I, I struggle with that. And I'm not bold, and I'm timid, and I shriek back, and I don't enjoy the Lord as much because I've forgotten the joy of my salvation and the commission he's given me to go and be a part of. Maybe this week it's like, what, what can I do to rekindle that fire and ask the Lord to put me out there on the front lines again? Maybe it's dealing with some kind of persecution. Maybe on whatever level that you're going through and having a re-perspective of, man, maybe it's not a ditch this, but maybe it's embrace it and realize it's something God is doing in and through my life to bring me closer to him. I don't know what that is for you, but I'm going to pray for us now. Ask the Lord to enlighten our hearts, renew our hearts, bring us back to the truth and the glory of the gospel and the honor and privilege of the Great Commission and that we would worship God in spirit and truth as we do that in song. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the testimony of Paul and that each and every one of us really scripturally, doctrinally had the same exact testimony if we are in Christ. You came in, you changed our hearts, you did something supernatural, you indwell us. And so now let us respond to that immediately now in song in the taking of the bread and the wine and the giving of our gifts. But in this week, let us look at where you're working in and through around us and jump in and say, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and make me bold as a lion because of what you did. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mason.